Hello and welcome to the next episode of Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. In each programme we'll focus on a particular movie and we're going to talk about that, give it a bit of a review and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always we'll end with our recommendations for films following this week's choice. The links will be as close or as tenuous as we want based on writers, actors, directors, themes, however we choose it. Uh, first of all, who are we? Um, well, we've introduced ourselves over 30 times now, so I'll keep it brief. Um, I'm I'm a teacher, he's he's a filmmaker, stuff like that. Um, but I do, do just want to say one thing. Um, Rob often introduces me as the clever one, or worse to that effect. And in terms of postgraduate ed- education, academic articles, and a book, I definitely am. But something that's been hammered home to me by this podcast and not introduced because I've kind of knew it already is that in several areas, inside film and outside film, it's Rob who definitely is the clever one. That's just I've watched thousands and thousands of terrible films. That's all it is. <laughs> he's he's being modest. It's, it doesn't come naturally to him. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So this week, Sam, it was your choice for our for our uh, our film watching. What have we got? <coughs> this this week we have the 2014-15 film Whiplash. This place is nice. I really like the music that they play. Bob Ellis on the drums. <laughs> I'm part of Schaefer's Top Jazz Orchestra. It's the best music school in the country. The key is to just relax. Don't worry about the numbers. Don't worry about what the other guys are thinking. You're here for a reason. Have fun. Five, six, and... I want to be great. And you're not. We got Buddy Rich here. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Uh, Whiplash is a film from director Damon Chazelle, starring J.K. Simmons and Mars Teller. Um, and I just say fourteen fifteen because it had a um, very limited release in uh, well it was released at Sundance Film at the beginning of twenty fourteen and then <clears throat> limited release later on in America and Canada towards the end of that year um, and then went on general release and was was available around the world at the beginning of twenty fifteen and it won. Best Supporting Actor Oscar for J.K. Simmons, although for the majority of the film, the piece is carried by Miles Teller. Um, mm-hmm. The film focuses on a few months in the life of a student at the Schaefer Conservatory in New York, um, played by Miles Teller, who has a single-minded focus on his drumming studies to the exclusion of all else. Um, fairly early on in the film, in one of the one of the best scenes in the film, I think, he is, he is asked whether or not he has any friends, and in his answer, Teller doesn't even seem to consider the possibility of having them. Um, Jackie Simmons is Terence Fletcher, who is a music teacher working at Schaefer with somewhat unorthodox attitudes to the development of his protégés. Unorthodox is the word. So that's the set of the film. Rob, your thoughts? I really liked it. Um, this is one of those films that got a lot of awards buzz, shall we say. And I think anyone who's a avid film watcher knows to take those kind of things with a slight pinch of salt. Mm. Because often they aren't 
they're more worthy than good, shall yeah. we say. Um, and they tend to have an obsession with films about genius as opposed to anything else. That being said, I thought this was an amazingly intense film viewing. We all, I sometimes listen to the weekend, and very often when you're watching a film, you're doing something else as well. Often you've got maybe a magazine in your lap, on your phone. Films can become backgroundy. This is one of those films where for two hours there's nothing but watch this mm. film. The two main performances, and there are really only two performances in this film. There are a few ancillary characters, but they are incidental at best the two main performances are furious performances of of talented actors i think that jk simmons is entirely deserved it oscar i think his is a powerhouse performance i think the script was well done i think that film surprised me at turns I think the film, there's one bit which we'll come to in time where I really thought the film was going down one route, which kind of made me sad a little bit. But it does pull the rug directly from under you in that and then does it again. Mm. And I think that it's clever, I think it's smart, and I think that on top of the smart story and the brilliant acting, it is a interesting cinematic experience. I think there's some very interesting things with with filmmaking as as a medium and as a, as a um as a language especially towards the end scenes that uh, are well worth talking about mm. sam your thoughts yeah i i love this film i think going on what, what you were just saying um, something that i heard mark como talking about recently is um that and it, it was in relation to Alicia Vikander in this case um and her various roles in the past year um but in in this case it it also rings true. Um, it's kind of difficult to categorise someone, and this is this is one of the many ways in which the awards are presented as rather rather artificial. Um, and it, so you're not really sure whether someone should be up for best actor or best supporting mm. actor, um, given their criteria. Um, and this is you get sort of anomalies like films being in one category for the Golden Globes maybe and in a completely different category for the BAFTAs or the Oscars um, I think this is one where it is as as I said at the beginning it's it's a film about Andrew but then it becomes a film about Fletcher um, and I think there is an argument to be made for saying that Mars Teller is should should garner the best actor uh, award at the beginning, and Jackie Simmons is is supporting. But then those roles switch yeah, around halfway mm. through the film. So there is there is something to be said for saying that these two should have been up for award together as sort of like an ensemble cast, a pairing, and as a particularly yes. successful manifestation of that. I, say, I, I I agree. I think that, that there's. I would say I would probably temper a little bit. And say probably didn't that the second half is very much a two-handed performance, right. and it's about the relationship. So the film starts off being about Miles Andrew, and it becomes about their relationship, mm-hmm. and in which you don't really have a lead actor because it's about their interactions. Yeah, right. I thought. Um... It's interesting though you you slipped up and said Mars instead of Andrew. Um, um, 
and there is there is something about this because um, Marcelo is himself a drummer, which meant that Chazelle could he, he didn't have to do sort of editing tricks to get around not showing Marcelo's hands. Mm. Um, so that that slip of yours kind of showed you that there's a sort of slippage between the actor and the character in this. Um, I think Miles Teller is very good at representing the psyche of someone who he he says wants to be appreciated by Fletcher, um, although you get the feeling that he doesn't really want to. Um, I mean that that's the the impression that I got. He just wants to be the best. It's not at the beginning. It's not about Fletcher. It's not about impressing Fletcher. It's just about being the absolute best. I think, I think that's. I, I would hardly agree. I think that whilst it becomes about their interactions and, and the back and forth between the two of them, it very much starts with him. His desire to just to move on. That he sees Fletcher as the next step in his in his mission to be a drummer at um, wherever. Mm. Um, and I think that there's very much that kind of something of the word I'm looking for here that in many ways that Andrew's character is kind of blank at the start and you never find out a lot I mean there's, there is one scene with I think with his family and you find out about his dad and his mum but J.K. Simmons' character particularly you never find out about his family no. you've never found out about if he's got wife, kids anything like that at all um, so I think it, this is where the film almost strips away all of the crap that can often come with these films. Yeah. And I agree, you do have the scenes with his dad, and you do have the scenes with his on-off girlfriend, but they almost exist entirely just to kind of to show how unimportant they are. Mm. That that the, the, their ancillary nature in the film exists to highlight the fact that they are ancillary in his life. Yes. Yeah. The the, the the film pays him such little heed because he pays him such little heed. And I think that's a clear trick of it. I will say that I think that, just before we move on too much, J.K. Simmons is a character, actor, that we've all seen in hundreds of things. Um, most notably, obviously, the start the Spider-Man films where he plays J. J., J. Jonah Jameson. But he's been in hundreds of things that we all know over the years. And I think it's a testament to him that at no point did I see the actor in him. No. He very much owns this role. Um, and I think that, that there's a, a, a lot to be said. And I think he deserves that. That deserves the actor, the Oscar that he, he was awarded. Yes. I've, I have a note about Simmons here. And I don't know what was scarier. I mean, his brutality or the parts where he acts like what seems to be a genuinely nice guy. I mean, he's he talks to talks to Andrew and and appears to present himself as a father figure at one point towards the beginning and then there is a scene with the daughter of a friend of his um, before a competition they're really quite tender scenes um, mm. and I, well, I suppose this could be what Chazelle is showing in, in his writing and his direction that that an abusive personality is is a complex one I think it comes back to the, the oft-said oft phrase, which I believe comes from your game originally, is that everyone's the hero in their own story. Mm. Like, w- the film clearly presents J.K. Simmons' character as Fletcher, as this abusive person. But at the same time, 
he also presents this story where he's like, yes, I know I'm harsh, I know I'm an orthodox, but you, that, that there's a reason why I'm doing this, and the reason why I'm doing this is it makes the best out of you. Yes, totally. So whether we agree with that thesis, and whether the film agrees with that thesis is a different conversation entirely, but Fletcher certainly feels like, whilst I would say the, the final scene does undercut that, his overarching ethos, as he presents it to Andrew, is that this is to make you great. Mm. That this is this is how we get greatness by you know putting you through the forge and the fire of this process. Is how we whittle away the crap and get the good. Mm. I think that we'll come to talk about that sort of in, in the podcast more. But I think that is worth noting that whilst we as an audience take him to be the bad guy I say in Vitty Commas in his mind he isn't in his mind he's the good guy he's the one person who's standing up against mediocrity and all that and he like yeah he's, he's nice to that kid because the kid's a kid mm. yeah um, it's, it's some, but I do think so it's, it's some, something that I know you haven't seen yet and you, you must get around to seeing having seen the pilot but it's something you get in the quote unquote bad guy of Daredevil is this conviction mm. that he is a good guy, that he's doing something for other people, that there is something selfless about what he's doing at the same time as he's doing something manifestly horrible. Um and in, in Daredevil it's I mean it's it's more horrible than in Whiplash, certainly, but it's the same sort of thing. It's it's showing um it's it's showing a, a villain who is who who believes in what he's doing, and he's not just doing mm. it for for the money or for the power or all, all the other different reasons that that bad guys quote unquote might be motivated. He is he genuinely believes in what he's doing for other people. I I agree. I think that there's there's two moments that do work to undercut that a little bit in the case of Fletcher and this is where we'll move into a bit of spoiler territory the first of which is there's a scene in which his one of his um, ex-students dies Hmm. you you see him finding out and he's very clearly affected by it Um, there's a scene in which Andrew interrupts him and he clearly is badly affected by this death but at the same time when he does this lovely moment where he plays this guy's trumpet playing to the rest of the band and says, you need to listen to this, you know, tell the story of this guy, he lies. Yes. Yeah. He says this person died in a car crash. When he didn't, he killed himself. And I think that that, that knowing moment of lying clearly is something to do with it. He knows the uh, the limitations of what he's doing and the effects of what he's doing. Mm. And the last one is, and this is the big one, right at the end, the very last scene when they play together, that that harshness there is not about helping Andrew grow. That's about revenge. Yes. Um, um, and whilst the it might come good in the end, he says, once again, in inverted commas, the actions of Fletcher at the start of that recital, the final recital, is not about that kind of forging them in the heat of battle. It's about revenge. True. I think there may be something there, though, that this... This well, I, I have a problem with that bit um, at the end, and it's not the problem you have. Um, I 
bought into that idea of revenge and it's the the most stomach churningly nightmarish idea um for, mm. for someone who has played music to any level who has played from music in a group um it's it is the most stomach churning idea this this idea of, of having to to play along with something that you don't know um but it, it, that's that's not my problem the the revenge aspect is not my problem my problem is right at the end where fletcher seems to say so un, unspeakingly because it's sort of eye contact in the very last frame of the film but fletcher seems to say i've done this i've i've worked him out i've i've got him mm. i i've achieved something here and i don't like that because that is the end of the narrative arc that you're talking about. This idea of him pushing Andrew and getting success from him. It's not the conclusion of a narrative arc in which he's revengeful. He should be seriously annoyed by that. As he is towards the end of that scene. And there's something... It just feels a little bit too... A little bit trite in a way that this film definitely isn't. Um, that That ending... I see what you're saying. I suppose that I saw that I saw that whole scene in a different way. In that, yes, it's about revenge, but the thing that drives Andrew to greatness is also revenge. Hmm. It's not about he 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 doesn't he isn't broken down in a kind of boot camp, you know, formal jacket style way and built back up again. He had moved on from Schaefer and had become a whole person and had a whole life outside of Schaefer. This opportunity came up, and he took his chance for revenge, and that's what caused it. You know, his his the opening of his brilliant drumming is to interrupt Fletcher when he's talking, yeah, to embarrass Fletcher in return for being embarrassed, and he takes control. He, he says to the ch- uh, the cellist, "I'll cue you." He says to Fletcher, "I'll cue you," and I think that the the, the final scene as I read it is not about it's it's almost the complete rejection of his idea of you beat them down to build them up it's tied much more to prove himself and yes it took a horrible person but it took that horrible person moving away from the idea of you know trial by combat and into revenge to force Andrew to be revengeful as well mm. and I'm not st- I'm still not saying that's a ethos I believe in I don't think that's how you get great students like our teachers but I, that's how I saw it. Was that in, in that final scene, both of them reject this relationship they've had of antagon, antagonistic and trying to prove himself. Andrew, up until then, was always trying to prove himself, mm. and he he was very involved in like that, I, I've earned this, I deserve this. And the, the final scene was not him proving he deserves anything; it was pre- him proving that you know, basically, fuck you, Fletcher. Yes, yeah. And this, I suppose, while while we're talking about this, this takes me on to something that. Um, I, I read a couple of reviews of this, um, and there's one review that um, really takes the film to task based on the fact that the um, central abiding myth, um, the episode between Charlie Parker and Joe Jones, um, is mm-hmm. wrong. Um, now, I... I I knew about this this episode. I hadn't really thought about it. And when 
when it was introduced to me in the film, I just went along with it because that's how I kind of half remembered it. But I half remembered it in the way that the film wanted me to because the well, what actually happens is Charlie Barker is a young saxophonist. He goes off piste and does little flourishes and it, it, according to one account go goes out of, out of tune by the end of it and he goes off key completely and joe jones who is a a dynamo professional a drummer throws a symbol to the floor in exasperation and it's not about physical abuse it's about him saying mm. charlie parker stop what you're doing and charlie parker is chastened and goes off goes away and comes back as charlie parker but and and what this review was saying was that in recasting this story into one of physical abuse um, and making someone go away and practice and that's how you get musical genius, which is which is Fletcher's idea. This this review was um, was saying well what the what the film is doing is is a fundamental misunderstanding of the idea of musical genius, but. I read it differently, and I thought that this wasn't really a problem. Um, it's kind of a reworking of this story, but isn't that what music, isn't that what jazz music is about? It's about mm. reworking stories. It's about manipulating your audience. Um, and it's something that Stephen Colbert was was talking about and summed it up quite nicely. And he he said... In, in terms of not believing this is how musical greatness was achieved, but quite enjoying how it was presented. He said, well, I don't believe that's how you make a great boxer either, but it doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. So mm. there, there is, I mean, there is something wrong factually to this film, but I'm, I'm with Stephen Colbert. I don't think it matters fundamentally. I I agree, and I would I would almost go one more, and I say that I think the film I, I can make an argument for the film does it knowingly because whilst that story we know the reality of it isn't that this becomes a myth, it becomes a musical a jazz myth, hmm. and Fletch himself seems to exist in a world of myth. You know, there's a scene when he walks into another into Andrew's first class, the normal band he's in. And like everyone just hushes and he takes complete ownership of the room. And at the end, there's big scenes about... like There's a scene of him playing in a jazz bar. And it's the only scene in the film where he isn't dressed in his trademark black. And he's smiling and he's happy and he's easy going. But that's a myth. It's not the real person. And there's a lot in this film about reality and the real person versus the underlying person. Mm. And Fletcher is a great one of those. But he has a, a face he puts on to his team, to his band, which he does admit is a knowingly abusive one um, in the scene in the, in the jazz bar. You have a scene where, you, a couple of scenes where his old student dies and you feel he's emotionally being real. And then you have these different layers of him and the idea of this myth, this inspirational myth, be it the Charlie Parker story, be it Fletcher as this, you know, bogeyman of jazz, but also the myth outside of Schaefer of, as him as this you know elder statesman of jazz hmm. i think that there's a film's making some points about mythology around genius and about musical genius in particular that it uses this mistelling of the stories for to to bolster up yeah. but i think it does it knowingly yeah so this film becomes about 
um, becomes about myth making. It's about the the creation of the myth, whether that's an inspirational myth or a, I don't know what what else you want to talk about. It's, it doesn't have to be to do with to do with music. Um, and think, and even with, I like what you're saying there. And he, even with when he when he has that moment where he tears up about Sean Casey, as you've already pointed out, it's a lie. So this mm. is a creation. This is another layer. This is another aspect of the myth. And at no point do you get an understanding of who Terence Fletcher is. And that's what the film's doing. This is not this is not a criticism of the film. This is me saying, well, this is how the character is presented. He's presented as myth upon myth upon myth and you never mm, get exactly. to him. Mm. I think that's where where the the final scene works for me is because it's a scene in which Andrew sees behind that myth. Up until that point he's been this mythological character, be he the you know the, the Minotaur at the end of the maze, or be this kind of this you know titan of of horror, or this actual father figure who he embraces in the jazz scene. The scene where Fletcher then actually turns around and abandons him on stage is the moment when he sees through that myth, and it not a it knocks Fletcher down, but raises up Andrew so that he's no longer mythological to him; that he's just another person, and thus can be beaten and triumphed over and he's no better if you see what I'm saying mm. so the destruction of the myth of Fletcher and Andrew's mind is what drives that final scene yes yeah um, just just a few points about the way this film looks I mean we've talked a lot about the acting and the brilliant, brilliant writing and direction as well but you haven't said just how great the editing of this film is the music is um, the way that the drumming scenes are cut together um, and the way that in in some ways the, the music reflects the, the narrative, reflects the pace of what's going on. As I said at the right my introduction, I think that the film does some really great things with film editing, especially in, in I keep going about the last scene. The editing in that last scene abandons every rule of filmmaking. There's a, there's a, a, um, a rule in filmmaking we kind of, if you're shooting a scene... You decide on a, on one line through the scene, and you stay on one side of that. So if you're shooting uh, people talking, your cameras aren't pointing at each other; they're kind of at forty five degrees. Right. So you stay; you, you don't cross that hundred and eighty degree line, and you always stay on one side of it because otherwise people get confused. That's why if you watch a back and forth scene, very often one person will be on the right side of the screen, one will be on the left. You don't cross the hundred eighty degrees. I see. Because it confuses the audience. And you can, but I suppose this, you, you can confuse the audience once and you can make a narrative exactly. point, but you don't do more than that. Yeah. And that's why occasionally these scenes where, like, if you think about bad boys, there's a shot in bad boys when they stand up and the camera spins around them. And it's a memorable shot because it subverts those rules. And if you think, we talked about it a little bit with, with Star Wars last week. Now, the one thing I didn't like about Star Wars at all was the very last shot when they helicopter around. Um, Luke and Ray, and that's because it crosses that one eighty degrees. Up until that, that seems to be a certain way, and that one shot at the end kicks you out of it. Mm. But this film is about jazz, and jazz is all about taking those rules and subverting them, running them, and changing them. And that last scene 
breaks all the rules of editing. Mm. You've got whip pans, which people just don't do anymore. You've got crossing the 180. You've got close-up to long shots to close-up to mid shots. So, all the hang, hang, on, rules... hang on, hang on, hang on. Back up. Okay. Whip pan? All right. So there's a, there's a shot, there's an shot, ongoing shot, which is probably a series of shots, in which Andrew's drumming and the camera whips round to fit Fletcher and whips back and whips round to Fletcher and right. whips black back. Mm-hmm. There's back and forth between the two of them. And that is a shot you just don't see. It not it, 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 A, it reminds the audience that there's a camera. It knocks you on the screen. It just isn't something that's done currently. So you're crossing that 180 line I talked about. There's a shots. You see the shots of the whole auditorium, and it flicks back quickly between one corner and the other corner, mm. breaking that idea of you look at it from one angle. Generally, in a film, you go from wide shot to mid shot to close up, and then back out again. And you break. You go it in that order because that way the audience can follow the action. So you take, take away any normal scene, big wide shot, come a bit closer, coming closer, and you kind of. If you're going, if you want to move your shot, you move up and down that ladder. Right. If you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, if you think, think about, about uh, Star Wars last week, the very last scene, it starts with a very wide shot of the of the planet, comes into a smaller shot of them landing, comes into sort of a full shot of her walking up, and it slowly cuts in till you end up on a shot on the hand over the entire scene. Right. And thus the audience feel drawn in. You don't see the cuts. Yeah. This film merrily jumps between wide shot close up the scene in which Fletcher smiles is oddly framed so you don't see his mouth and all of these things would normally be what we class as bad editing but because of the nature of this film because of the nature of jazz and the music that's being played with it it's completely perfect Mm. for this scene and so they on top of the musical jazz that they're playing on stage, the editors have done a great work of subverting those filmic language to create that same effect. That the idea you're, you're seeing this music made flesh, music made visual by the way that it's shot. And those tricks aren't used anywhere else in the film because I think it's all about that final scene being the culmination, the denouement of, of this musical journey. And that's it, everyone. We can pack up and go home. Like, Rob has just won the podcast. Right. Done. <laughs> film degrees. They can be useful occasionally. Yes. They can also be useful for film recommendations. I mentioned this film was yes. bought for me by my sister, who is the only other film student I know. Um, well, there we go. There we go. Right, Rob, recommendations this week. Yeah, so I'm I'm making two films. Like, this is one of those films where I struggled for a long time to find a recommendation that I felt was in the same kind of style and ethos of it. I kind of failed. I couldn't think of a film that was similar. So I've kind of gone around it, but there, kind of this film stands alone in the way it presents and handles these things. So they are a bit more disjointed. My first recommendation is entirely thematically different, but does have, have Martell in it again. And it's called That Awkward Moment. It's from 2014. It stars Zac Efron, right. Michael B. Jordan, who's in Creed, and Martellus, three friends. It's a buddy romantic comedy. Um, it is, I would say, of the the modern cadre of good romantic comedies, mm. ones that don't that play across gender divides, tend to play across um, traditional narrow 
demographics of, of rom-coms it's very funny i think that miles particularly and michael b jordan are very very funny in it it is it is a rom-com it is that kind of film so it isn't in the same way at all like um like whiplash but miles in it and he's very good in it my second recommendation i've kind of taken the the, the teacher theme and, and the instructor theme and taken it very much the opposite end of the spectrum with the 1989 film the dead poet society now this film is very much a film that inspired me a lot growing up um and may feature i would say probably one of the best teachers in filmic history very much the opposite end of of teaching style to whiplash Mm. but equally sad equally heartfelt equally wrenching to watch can i just Um, say it as a teacher equally fictional but yes yeah i mean it is equally as fantastical and as rousing as any kind of mindless action film but it is i think it's amazing it's well written i think Mm. it's well acted and i think that it's an important film yeah so those are my two recommendations um my recommendations for this week like you i had trouble picking films that were thematically linked any way to this, which sort of stands on its own. Um, so I have cheated um, and gone for one that just reminds you of, I suppose that that stage in J.K. Simmons's career. You were, you were talking about where he is a character actor who is in everything, um, and I thought he was very good, unre- unremarkable, but in a good way as the father in Juno. That's my recommendation mm. for for one. Um, and my second is <laughs> one that is not going to come instantly to mind because it's thematically very different. Um, but it has the same sort of ideas of competing personalities and an, an intense environment and the fact that the people can't understand what's going on. It's the 1995 um, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro film Heat. Mm. Okay, they're my rec- two recommendations for this week. So Brilliant. N- next week is your choice. Yes, it is my choice. Um, and I am denied a film to, don't, to I pick don't, this week. By the way, I don't like it when you say that. I can tell you've got a little smile on your face, and you, you know you're going to let me in for something. Well, no, no, no. But this is this is. I'm not going to make you watch any more Italian horror. I promise. Okay. It, this is, I, I've got some films I want to cover on this. I've got behind the scenes listeners. I've got a list of films I want to talk about on this at some point. But some of them I'm kind of like, I don't know what we're going to talk about in that film. But you know what? We'll find something. So next week, I would like to watch and talk about the 1972 sci-fi classic Silent Runnings. Oh, brilliant film! Good. It's one I probably haven't seen in ten years. No, me neither. I remember watching it growing up and loving it and it's always struck me as being different to other sci-fi of the era and we'll talk about that all next week. Oh good. I'm I'm happy and and relieved. I don't know where you're going. Um <laughs> Right. We would love you to get in touch if you can. Um we are both available on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. Or you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. Or just me at life underscore academic. And we'll see you all next week, guys. Cheers. 
The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash kaiju industries. Rawr! Arg.